That last um, stanza that we sang from, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, that's kind of what the, um, the message is somewhat about this afternoon. Because why will people lean on Jesus? In the world today, many people will lean on him for all different reasons. And in the passage we're going to read today and uh, the, the confession statement that we read from Lord's Day 2, we say why we lean on Jesus. So if you can turn with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, reading 34 to 40. This is a man that comes to Jesus and wants, in a sense, to have an argument about the law. He, he doesn't see the law so much as revealing his need for Jesus, but to tell other people how good he is and how bad other people are. So if you can turn with me, Matthew 22, starting at verse 34. This is just after Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They'd come with questions to make Jesus look funny, look bad, but it backfired on them, and Jesus showed his superiority in knowing the Old Testament and also knowing the mind of God because he is God. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So far, the word of our Lord. And before we, I go over that, can we also turn to our confessional statement, Lord's Day 2? One of the shorter ones. First question and answer is probably the, the shortest of all. I think when I was in catechism, I liked that question because it was short. It was easy. I had to memorize when I was a younger one, and um, that was an easy one to memorize. And this whole Lord's Day 2 is a fairly easy one to memorize. And I hope it sticks in your mind as we go through it, um, this passage and this confessional statement this afternoon. So the first question is, how do you come to know your misery? God tells us. And so, sorry, I didn't know that you guys, I'm glad you're responding. <laughs> I did, not all churches respond, so I'm thankful that you did it without even me asking. Um, what does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, can you live up to this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The last question and answer sometimes can startle people. Because you ask the average person on the street, 
that question, if you say, you know what, are you inclined to hate God and your neighbor? Most people would say no because they don't understand that um, the Bible emphasizing if it's not loving, it's hating. So we'll get to that in a little while, but um, it's a startling thing. But you can ask the world today, most people say, yeah, there's, there's sins around. But <clears throat> where do most people know or define what sin is? When you talk to the average person on the street, they would say, yeah, there's, there's sin in this world. People do bad things. But then when you ask them, okay, what defines a sin? They go by their feelings or what other people think, their desires sometimes. And some people think, well, it's just the huge sins that are really sins. Those things like, like stealing something here or there, gossiping, or saying crude jokes. That's just, that's just kid stuff. It's not really a sin. That can fall into our minds and hearts at times too. We can sometimes, in our own minds, determine what really is a sin and what's not a sin by what we personally think. I remember this was um, some time ago. This was another church. Um, I talked to this minister. He was from the United Church of Canada. And he was, about 20 years ago, adamantly opposed to the whole gay agenda. And he was, like, over the top, um, hateful towards them. And I said, boy, you, yeah, it's wrong, but you have to show a little bit more um, love to those people who are, that, that's not the worst sin there is. They're all sin before God. But he put it way up there as the worst possible thing anybody could do until... It was found out his daughter came out and was a lesbian. And then he switched. Well, that's not that bad anymore. So even within church communities, there is, you can say, um, oftentimes, whatever I feel comfortable with, I don't think it's a sin. I, if I don't feel comfortable about it, then I think it's a sin. And we can, that can affect us at times, too. We can sometimes be comfortable with that sin. I can say about gossiping, gossiping is often referred to in the Bible as one of those things that shouldn't happen. It's bearing false witness against your neighbor. But I think oftentimes we are more comfortable with it than we should be. We should see it as sin. And Lord's Day 2 starts off with a question how do you know your misery? And this is the first, you can say the first section of the catechism to know how great my sins and misery are. And the first question, well, how do you know your misery? And you can say, well, I don't feel too much misery. But the only way you could know how by nature we're under, the, under misery, you could say, is to understand what our sins are before a holy, holy, holy God. Because if we don't really know that, if we don't come from the, pros- from the perspective of, you know what, there's a holy, holy, holy God, and he detests sin. The Bible talks about he's a consuming fire in respect to sin. And 
to acknowledge this is not a thing that um, most in the world really would understand. If you would ask the average person, hey, do you know your misery? And they would right away point out about possibly, you know what, I have this, this sickness. Or, you know, global warming, maybe some people would say. Or maybe somebody would say, hey, there's all these wars in the world. There's killing on the news. There's natural catastrophes. And they said, yeah, there's a lot of misery in this world. Or we can think, you know what, there's a lot of misery. There's abortion going on. The whole homosexual agenda. The whole gender issues. We can say, boy, there's a lot of misery in this world. But notice what our catechism says. It doesn't say, how do you know that there's misery in the world? It says, how do you know your misery? And that's your natural state before God without salvation. Your natural state before God without salvation. He's not talking about the other stuff that's out there. He's talking about something, the catechism, something about you personally. And then sometimes we can say, you know, I don't have too much misery. I come from a fairly stable environment, stable family, nice church, nice education. It says, hey, my nature, hey, things are going pretty good in my life. But do you understand by nature, before God, because of sin, there's misery. And the man that came to Jesus that day and asked him what the greatest commandment of the law is, he wasn't concerned looking at the, you can say, the law of God in a way that would, you can say, affect him to make like a, like a mirror to reflect who he was before God as a sinful person. He and many of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law back then, and there's many people like that today, they, they more look at the law as, hey, a self-help book. And if you really are, you can say, pretty determined, you can do it. And those people over there, over there, they're living miserable life because they don't reap the standard that I'm living according to the law of God. It's interesting. A lot of the, you go to a, you go to a library. Maybe there's not too many on library or bookstores. <clears throat> bookstores are almost a thing of the past now. But if you went to one, um, you, usually the Christian books are more and more are in a place called self help. <laughs> so more and more the world sees the Bible as a self help book. The law of God is a self help book, and that's what. This man coming to Jesus, he wanted to have an argument about that. Well, hey, Jesus, you think it's you, you hang around with all these people. If you really were concerned about the commandments, you would live a certain way. Let, let's have a discussion about how we are to live because he thought following the commandments would make him right with God. And that can sometimes fall into our minds and our hearts that we start to look at the law as saying, you look, I'm doing pretty good. It's interesting, in other places in the Bible, it's told us you can never be pretty good according to the commandments of God. You're either pure, without sin, 
or you're sinful according to the word of God. So if you, if you say, you know, I keep 80 of, 80% or 90%, you, you still broke the whole commandment. You broke it all. So we, we can't look at the commandments as, as can say, a self-help book to help us feel better, to help us look better before God. And this, this man who comes, Jesus now says, okay, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to tell you something that the commandments, the commandments and the law emphasizing. Now, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, if you're honest, can you keep that perfectly? If you're honest, can you say, you know, in every moment of my life, I have done that. I have, with my heart, and your heart is all your desires, that God is, your love for God is always at the top. With all of the desires in your life, God is always at the top, and your love for him is always at the top. Your soul, your life, everything about you, it's about loving God. And what your mind, your thinking, is your thinking always about how you can love God more. How you can, you can say, dive into Scripture to get to know Him so that you can love Him better. And every part of your strength, all that you have, you're willing to give it all out of love for the Lord. So if that's the standard, and, and God's basically saying, unless that happens in your life, you can't have relationship with me. And to be outside of relationship with God is to be on your way to hell. So that's, our, that's our misery. Our natural, we're all, you can say, born in a sense with that misery. But thanks be to God, he didn't leave us in, his misery, in that misery. He sent Jesus Christ who did this perfectly. He left heaven. He says, hey, those people that God from an eternity past has a love for, I will go down and I will show that love to you, O my heavenly Father. I will show that perfect love, loving you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. He left heaven, came down, became a a human being just like us, tempted like us, dealt with all the problems and difficulties of this world, was despised and rejected, and yet loved his heavenly Father always. Even at that garden when he says, if there's any other way, please take this from me, but not my will, your will be done. My love is first for you to do what you desired. You had a love for the world, and I will give my life to express that love to you. So Jesus was willing to do that because in our situation, without him coming for us, we would stay in that miserable, in that misery. That misery would settle upon us and nothing could take it away. That's why a lot of people had problems with Jesus when he came especially the Pharisees and Sadducees, because Jesus said, you know what? You guys are useless at saving yourselves. You just pile up 
what more misery for the future. You're, you're, you're kind of whistling in the dark. You're pretending everything's right. But you can't save yourself. So the people in Jesus' time who were the hardest for Jesus, they were angry that he says, hey, you need me. You're useless in respect of saving yourself. You're in deep misery. You're like in quicksand, and every time you move, you just keep pushing yourself down and down and down. You can't save yourself. You just make it worse. But he says, but I'm here to pull you out of that, to restore you. I'll live the perfect life for you, but you have to admit that by nature, that's your misery. That's your state before God without Jesus. And then Jesus doesn't end with that great and first commandment, but he adds to it, doesn't it? Because the second is like it. So how can one be great and the second be like it? It's because they're very connected because of who we are as human being, who your neighbor is as a human being. Every human being is created in the image of God. Even after sin came into the world, every human being... Everyone, even your enemy, is an image bearer of God. And that's why after the flood, when Noah came out of the ark and God said, you know what, one person should not kill another person. Why? Because every human being is created in God's image. Everyone. So when he, when he says the second is like it, it's because if you really love God you would love his image bearers. Just like if you had somebody you really loved, your family member, you would take a picture of that person, maybe hang on the wall. Some of you probably do that. Why do you do that? Why do you hang pictures of people you love on the wall? Because they represent that person. And that's a, that's a small thing. Every human being represents God in some way. Crumpled up, yes. Sometimes you can't even already notice it. It's like a crumpled up, but if flattened out, it's, an, it's not a visible, but represents God in some way. So that's why the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And some people said, boy, it's, yeah, I can love God, but that neighbor down the street who treats me so badly... What does Jesus say about that? He says, yeah, if somebody treats you badly, if an enemy, you can, you can um, give them a what for. It doesn't say that. Jesus says, love your enemies. He even says, be like your heavenly Father who loves both the righteous and the wicked, who sends the sunshine and the rain, both in the righteous and the wicked. He says, be like that. And if you say you can, yeah, I'm... I'm I think I can love God pretty good. If you say you can love your, your neighbor that way, um, you're not being honest with yourself even more. We struggle with, at times, loving God the way we should. I think we even struggle more with loving the neighbor, any neighbor, the way we should. And again, it shows our misery. We can't do it. We naturally can't love the way God not just asks us to, commands us to. 
demands us to. He says, unless you can do this, you have no part with me. So that's our misery before the Lord. And we, we don't find it about our what we like and don't like. The Bible, throughout the Bible, it tells us that because he says, hey, it's just not, Jesus is saying, hey, this is a new reality here. He says, no, all these two, all the law of the prophets hang on these things. He's quoting passages in the Old Testament, in the first one in Deuteronomy, in the second part in, in um, Leviticus. He, he, he quotes these, he quotes the Old Testament. He said, this ain't new. This has always been the case. This has always been the case from the time of Adam and Eve that this is God's requirement. So throughout the ages, this is the misery that we face. God's standard is higher than we can accomplish. And he wants us just to admit it. I can't do it. And who has the biggest problem with that? Those people are full of themselves. They think, you know what? I can do it. I can do it. I can be good enough. I've talked to a lot of people on the streets, and the average person, I says, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And it's always the same answer. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy down the road. <laughs> I hear these guys on TV, yeah, they're probably going to hell, but you know what? I've been a pretty good person. They don't understand their misery before God. They don't accept the fact that God's standard is beyond them and they need Jesus Christ desperately. Because if, if you think your problem is slight, then your understanding of your need for Jesus Christ is little. Jesus one time gave, remember that woman who came to Jesus? Jesus at a banquet and they invited him there. They didn't treat him all that well when he came. Didn't wash his feet, didn't give him oil for his head, didn't give him a welcoming kiss. And this lady comes in and was overwhelmed with love for Jesus. And she cried over his feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and poured perfume on, her, on his feet and kissed his feet. And Jesus says, you know why? She understood her misery. She understood her sin before a holy God. And he said to the man, you don't even know that. Now, what about you and I today? Do we understand our natural misery before God? Because if we don't, we won't be that thankful for what Jesus did for us. Because Jesus in that same parable said, hey, she's forgiven much. She knew her great desperation, so she loved much. But if you don't know your great desperation before the Lord... You won't love him the way you should. If you think, wow, I'm not that bad. He just kind of helped me along. I'm from a good family, good church. Jesus is just a good addition to that. No, he's everything. Church can't save you. Family can't save you. Nobody can save you except Jesus Christ. Right? That imagery of you in a, imagine in quicksand. And every movement you do, everything that you think can, can bring you advantage in some way will just make you sink down deeper and deeper unless you cry out to Jesus. He's the only one who can save you. And that's why the last question is so stark. 
Can you live up to this perfectly? No. I'm inclined to hate God and my neighbor. That's a, to, to admit that before a holy God. To say, God, I'm sorry, but I naturally hate you. I, by nature, hate you and my neighbor. You desire for me to love you with all my heart, soul, and mind. And by nature, that's me. I'm pathetic. And then you can say, but he still sent his son. That, 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 that great passage, God so loved the world. No, he didn't love the world. He looked around, hey, I'm going to look for some good people. There's none, that, none, that, none that's good. We hear that over and over again in the Bible. None that seeks and pleases God. And yet God wants you to believe he sent his son to be the perfect one you aren't, to cover you with that righteousness and then go to that cross and take away all your sin. So you can say, because of Jesus Christ, I'm lifted out of my misery. I'm lifted out of that, you could say, quicksand. I'm a beloved child of God now. He loves me. Not because of who I am, just me admitting my misery and clinging to Jesus in faith, trusting in him. It doesn't take rocket science. It doesn't take all kinds of, you can say, a deep, deep theological understanding of the Bible. Oftentimes, in the world today, those who know the Bible the most, many in theological colleges, seminaries, many of them don't believe it because they think they're, they're too good for it. Yeah, that's nice for those people who are kind of backwards or old-fashioned or don't, aren't as smart as me. It doesn't take rocket, just a, a humbling acceptance. Because he says all, like the, everything in the law and the prophets hang on these things. If you say, you know what, this is what God desires, and I can't do it. God, please thank you that you sent your son Jesus Christ to do it for me. And that when I put my faith in him, I don't have to worry about that misery. I don't have to worry about whistling in the dark. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Imagine going through a dark alley, maybe in New York or Chicago, at nighttime. And you're oblivious to what you could say the situation could develop for you. And you're whistling as if everything's okay. And the law opens your eyes to see, I'm not okay. I need Jesus. And may that be true of each of you, and may you continue to see that. May you continue to have that thankful heart and say, you know what, that's my misery. It's just not a a sad state of affairs. It's deep desperation. In my deep desperation, Jesus came for me. While I was yet a sinner, he came for me. And you can't say, well, I was, I'm in a, in a good Christian home, a good Christian family. We're all conceived and born in sin. Our natural state is like that. And the only way you can be, you can say, brought out of this misery, this quicksand that will bring you down all the way to hell, is Jesus Christ. And may that overwhelm you with joy, just like that woman that came to Jesus that one day at that banquet and fell before him, crying with joy. So her tears washed his feet, and she washed his feet, muddy feet with her hair, 
kissed them and anointed them. That showed a great love. And guess what it also showed? It showed he didn't care what other people thought. Her devotion, her thankfulness to God was so, you can say, important to her that it didn't really bother that every person, what's she doing? And back then, a woman's hair was even more important today than today. It was their, their crown, you could say. It was a special thing for a woman, her hair. And then to wash somebody's feet with her hair was basically a great humiliating thing. But why did she do it? Because she understood her misery in herself and what Jesus was to her, her Savior, her Lord, who plucked her out of that misery, that quicksand that would bring her to hell. And she says, hey, because of him, I'm a child of God. No matter what I was in the past, I'm a child of God now because of his great love for me. And may that be true of each of us here. But again, maybe I repeat it too much, but the only way you can truly experience that great joy is to acknowledge your misery. That's why the catechism emphasizing at first, it's just not, okay, once you've figured out your misery, then you're done with that. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You constantly have to reflect on that. So you constantly are thankful for what the Lord Jesus Christ did. The, the catechism is constantly, you, you can't take one without the other, those three, you can say, sections of the Heidelberg Catechism, to, to know your sinfulness and, to, and then to understand what Jesus did for you, who he is and what he did for you, it causes you to be thankful. But it starts with having an, not starts with, it's an ongoing understanding. That's my natural state. And look what Jesus did for me. So it may, may it cause us constantly to be thankful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our thankfulness, we're willing to serve him. You're, you don't serve a person you're not thankful for, not, not properly any, anyways. If there's any authority in your life and you're not, if you're not thankful you're under that authority, you're not going to serve that person that well. But when you're truly thankful that for Jesus plucking you out of that misery, then you will be able to serve him. Not perfectly, because we're still going to sin at times. But you will have more and more of a desire to serve him out of the thankful heart you have as you reflect more and more on what he has saved you from. Let's pray. Lord God, Father in heaven, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, each of us here, without the saving work of Jesus Christ, would be utterly lost on our way to hell, in great misery, and we wouldn't even know it. But Lord, thank you for your word, that you help us to see it, that we're incapable of doing what you command us to do, to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. We're incapable to do it perfectly. Thank you that you sent Jesus Christ that he was willing to do it for us perfectly and then go to the cross to wash away our sins. May we truly believe that we've been plucked out of that misery and may we ever reflect on that, on the great salvation you have given to us. Lord, may it cause us to be ever thankful to you and in our thankfulness, may we ever seek to serve you, our Lord, 
Lord, we pray that you would also instill into us a desire to spread that good news to others. For the Lord, for our Lord, the whole world without Christ lives under that misery, and many are just whistling in the dark, thinking everything's all right, even though they're on their way to hell. And may we whimsically and lovingly share the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. Give us opportunities. Give us a desire. For, Lord, you, you called us to pray, not only to honor your name, but for your kingdom to come your, and your will be done. And may you give us all that we stand in need of so that we would not just say that with our mouths, but that we would show that with our lives that we seek more and more for, for us to live for King Jesus and for others and to know King Jesus and live for him as forgiven people through faith in Jesus Christ. And may, therefore, you give us the ability, the desire, the opportunities to tell the good news to others who are still in that misery and don't even know it. And Lord, we pray that you would touch many hearts as we seek to tell others about Jesus, that they too would come to the conclusion of what their state is without Jesus and their need for Jesus so that they would run to him, seeking him. And Lord, if we have family members, friends who are in that state, Lord, we pray that you would richly bless us with a desire for us to tell them not only of their misery, but of Jesus Christ. May we do it whimsically, lovingly, encouragingly. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. 